the Packers aren't loving life without Rodgers. Lamar leads another last-second thriller. And the biggest divas in NFL history. Welcome to Saturday Morning Inspection. Saturday morning inspection. I'm Nick Rudman, joined as always by Andrew Mize. We are not the typical big sports media TV show with the big budgets and the fancy suits and the talking heads. We have to rely on doing our research and being ridiculously smart and ridiculously good looking. Yes, Nick. And because we are not backed by big sports media, we would like to thank all of our listeners because that is who helps support our show. And whether you're listening on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or somehow link off of our website, smishow.com, we would like to tell you all, we greatly appreciate you, and if you could please give us a like, comment, or subscribe so you can get kept up on all of our current events. We just can't thank you enough for that. Uh, We have a great show planned today, and as always, we're going to get straight into it, and on the top of the list today, we have... The Packers versus the Chiefs. Nick, let's get started on that one. Yeah, so obviously the big story of the day is the Packers without Aaron Rodgers. Um, Starting Jordan Love in his first career start, tough environment going to Kansas City. Uh, Was a good opportunity for him potentially playing a very, very poor Kansas City defense and a Kansas City team that had not been playing well in recent weeks. Unfortunately for Jordan Love in Green Bay, he did not do a good job executing scored only seven points against a very, very bad defense. And those seven points came at the end of the game. Um, Spoiled a really good effort by that Green Bay defense, holding Mahomes to another poor performance, less than 200 yards passing, only 13 points at home for a suddenly floundering Kansas City offense. You know, I know there's a lot of takes going on right now. Is uh, is Mahomes struggling? Was it the Green Bay defense? I'm curious what your thoughts on it. I know you've got some opinions. Is this a another trend downwards for Patrick Mahomes and that Kansas City offense? Well, one thing I would like to acknowledge is what you said is you said the Chiefs have a bad defense, but let's clarify, they're actually the worst defense. So this makes Jordan Love's lackluster performance even worse. But Green Bay is also struggling, and whether they have a good defense or not, their defense is not terrible. It's decent. And I think they're getting healthier, so that helps. One thing that we cannot neglect is the offense literally did nothing. Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs were on the field all night, and they could only score two touchdowns. This has got to be very, very disheartening for Chiefs fans. And I wonder, what is the issue with Patrick Mahomes, and will he be able to overcome it? I'm not sure. I You'd think 10 games into the season we would see something, but it really hasn't gotten any better. It's just gotten worse. Yeah, they've definitely struggled offensively. There's no doubt about that. But the thing that's so scary about Kansas City is they're kind of a sleeping giant. Even with all their offensive issues over the past month or so, they still have won three of their last four games. You, you, very few teams can really come back and say, hey, we had a really bad month. We were 3-1. and one. That tells you how much talent is there for Mahomes in that Kansas City team, at least on the offensive side of the ball. Now, if they can overcome their deficiencies and play at that level, they're going to be really tough to beat. I think the fact that they went through this stretch, granted they were playing Green Bay without Aaron Rodgers, that certainly helped. 
But the fact that they're able to go three and one during this stretch as much as they've struggled, I think is a sign that teams in the AFC may have to be a little bit worried about Kansas City. Because if there is a chance, granted Mahomes has played poorly, we don't know if there's much of a chance. If there is a chance Mahomes picks up his game and starts playing at a higher level, this is a very threatening and powerful team come stretch time in the AFC. Absolutely. And one positive, Mahomes didn't throw a pick this week, so there's improvement. Uh, improvement. And like you said, Everybody knows what Kansas City can be or has been in the past. So like you said, that sleeping giant, uh, everyone, even if they, let's say they were 1-3 rather than 3-1, and one, everyone has to play them like they're undefeated because you have to prepare because if they catch you sleeping, they're gonna, they have the chance to go off on you. And you don't want to be the team that uh, gets caught with their, you know, head in the sand not sleeping on the Kansas City Chiefs and get blown out right and we forget you know earlier in the year Kansas City dropped 35 against Baltimore they dropped 42 against Philly uh, 24 against LA the LA Chargers despite Mahomes throwing two picks so this offense certainly is not a total dumpster fire when they're playing well and Mahomes is is playing even a slightly better than he's been playing recently so like like we talked about, there's still a threat in the AFC. There's some concerns going on, definitely, with how Mahomes continues to not overcome uh, the struggles he's had adapting to his new reality. I, I think the big issue for Mahomes has been his inability to adjust to his uh, offensive line, taking a step back. I think Pro Football Focus they did uh, they did some analysis and determined that. Uh, despite the investments in the Kansas City offensive line, they're actually a bottom five in pass blocking efficiency. Granted, that's a lot of numbers and analysis done by somebody who's not in that locker room and not on the field. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But I think there is, you know, you watch the games, there is evidence that that offensive line is not as good as it once was. Mahomes doesn't have the the time and the ability to go around and make these crazy deep throws to Tyreek Hill and some of these other speedsters that he used to. And I think it's negatively affecting uh, that team, certainly, and it's negatively affecting Mahomes. He's not used to having to work so hard just to get first downs and, and move the football. I think one thing Mahomes could have taken note from this week is even though he didn't play, somebody that he should be looking up to is Aaron Rodgers because the reality for Mahomes going forward is after signing such a huge contract, he will be like Aaron Rodgers having absolutely no help around him and he needs to get used to that. You're not going to have the superstar team around you on a contract like that anymore because eventually Tyreek Hill is going to have to get paid, uh, you know, Travis Kelsey has gotten paid, but there's other guys on that offense who need to, you know, uh, get their cut of the pie. And going forward, you're not going to be able to have good all around the ball. Yeah, or you're going to have a lot of rookies. You're going to have a lot of third and fourth and fifth round picks playing wide receiver and, you know, guys who aren't as used to your scrambling drills or, or Andy Reid's complex offense. And it's just going to get harder for Mahomes. And, you know, hopefully he adapts and, and adjusts to his new normal and, and becomes a better player uh, with his situation, at least better than he's been recently. But I agree with you. I think it's going to get harder now that he's gotten paid uh, to, to get a better team around him and a better roster situation. Uh, one thing we can move on from this story, but on the same s- subject is Jordan Love sucks. Um, <laughs> he played terrible. And I say that the nicest way possible that if he was ever to perform against a team it would be this Kansas City team that we have right now uh they have the worst defense in the NFL uh 
all you need to do is throw the ball towards Sorensen, and you can score a touchdown on pretty much every play. He was only able to do that once, and he actually did throw the ball towards Sorensen for the touchdown. So go figure. But uh, this is not a good look for Green Bay fans, uh, especially people who maybe aren't happy with Rodgers and think, oh, we can maybe love is our savior. Well, he is not the savior, but I think that's what we need to talk about is Aaron Rodgers and uh, what this game says about him. Oh, I think it highlights his importance. I, you know, last week I've talked about Rodgers being my pick for MVP. Um, obviously didn't play in this game, but I think he actually helped his odds a little bit. Green Bay, you know, one of the league's best teams. They beat Arizona in Arizona uh, their previous game. And then without Rodgers, they look ugly offensively and lose a very winnable game against a very bad Kansas City defense. I, I think his value to the team, you know, obviously his talent and his ability to make plays down the field with his arm is, is, is among the all-time great NFL history. But where his next level is his managing of the flow of the game and control of the game. And it's some some of the little stuff, right? His almost innate ability in every game, how he kind of is able to catch defenses substituting to get a quick offsides or run up to the ball, you know, get them offsides and get a free play. You know, it's those little things and that, that kind of add up over the course of the game. You know, it's his ability to, you know, maybe escape a rush and know right where his outlet is and deliver a quick dart for an easy five or, or to know when to take the sack and when not to take a sack and things like that, that Jordan Love was just no business doing any of that right. I mean, all the complaints about Jordan Love coming in, you know, coming out of Utah State and when, before he was the first round pick of Green Bay was all the talent in the world, how's his accuracy and decision-making? Because he had thrown some interceptions in college. He had been a little inaccurate in college. Big, strong guy, big arm, can make every throw. Is he accurate? Can you make the right decisions? And against a very, very bad defense, he was very inaccurate. You know, Troy Aikman was trying, who was the announcer of the game, was trying really hard to be nice. But by the fourth quarter, he kind of gave up and said, yeah, he's got to make those throws. How is he missing these throws? This is another bad throw. You know, it's really rare to see a quarterback on TV trash another quarterback. That's how bad Jordan Love was. And his decision-making obviously was bad, too. He took some bad sacks. He got them in some bad situations offensively that they weren't able to recover. And, you know, as a guy in his third year in the league, those aren't things that should be happening. I mean, as a rookie, maybe it's more understandable, but right now it's not. And without Rodgers on the field, you know, Green Bay looks far from a contender. Yep. I think this game does two things for Rodgers. One, it allows him next season to take his checkbook into the office, write a number on the check and say, this is what I want. And Green Bay is pretty much forced to sign it because they don't have a better option. You know, we already invested a first-round pick on a quarterback. We're going to look like idiots if we get another one because we have an MVP-caliber quarterback, Super Bowl winner on our team. Uh, so we don't want to look like fools twice. So Rodgers can get whatever he wants, really, to play again next year. And number two thing it does, with all the controversy surrounding Rodgers this week, uh, this has put Rodgers in a position to where if he's able to go out this week, throw like, you know, three or four touchdowns, like three or 400 yards— I bet there won't be a single word about Rodgers and the and the C word next week about whether he was vaccinated or unvaccinated. That won't be on anyone's mind. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. And, and to be honest, and I guess we got to you know get into the topic now, which is good. This is a good good conversation to have. It's all over sports media and frankly, uh, general media and, and, and news media is is the whole Rodgers situation with 
him testing positive for COVID. And then uh, as his protocols that you have followed revealed that he was not vaccinated and all his comments and things like that uh, uh, prior to the season about him being immunized and, and, and all of that stuff and all the different uh, remedies and things he took preventative remedies and, and all of that. And I, I won't go into that too much, uh, but I think the big thing is, you know, you talked about no one talking about Rogers and the C word next week, if he plays well, you know, I think the big thing with this whole Rogers situation is he's obviously received a lot of criticism from, you know, the big media heads, you know, whether it's sports or big news media, just, you know, clamping down on Rogers a whole lot, being really, really tough and really, really, and a lot of things I think are just being unfair and kind of ridiculous. Um, not one person in that organization, player, executive, scout, water boy, either publicly or anonymously has criticized Rogers. Not one of his peers or colleagues, other players, other scouts, whatever throughout the league has criticized Rogers for his stance and his actions on any of this. And when I think about that, I think it just speaks volumes to the level of respect Rogers has in his locker room and, and throughout pro football for that matter. Um, and just his stake in the game is so much more important than his stance on this particular issue or his actions related to this issue. I think his, his peers and colleagues and competitors, you know, on, on other teams, see him as so much more beyond than this. And I think it's a, it's really impressive to see that in the pro football today. Go ahead. I know you got some stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I think one thing that all of these big sports media, big news media who are absolutely drilling Rogers for uh, his stance on the COVID vaccine, what they need to realize is, and one thing that they may, instead of saying, Oh, he lied or he was, was unclear with his words. One thing they may need to realize is there's probably a reason why Aaron Rodgers did what he did. Uh, I think that everybody is entitled to their own choice on what they do or don't do regards to that. And I think that goes especially for Aaron Rodgers. But I think Aaron Rodgers was very insightful when he did this by understanding that he is a Super Bowl winning, MVP winning, Hall of Fame quarterback, and he has a huge platform whether he wanted it or not. And one thing a huge platform brings is followership, listenership, people who, you know, if Aaron Rodgers says, hi, my name's Aaron Rodgers, and I eat every meal at McDonald's, that's why I am the greatest quarterback uh, in NFL history, people are going to start eating more McDonald's. They're going to follow what he says, whether he's the authority on that or not. And I think what Rodgers was trying to do when he said what he said is he was trying to kind of get past the questions and things like that in the most low-profile manner that he could so he doesn't have to become the poster boy for being vaccinated or unvaccinated in the NFL and the debate that has evolved he obviously knew it would happen because look we figured out and that's all anyone's ever talking about is why did Aaron Rodgers take this why did he do that why did he say this why did he say that but all of this has devolved to exactly what he was trying to get away from he said it's you you make your own decision I'm not one to tell you what to make that decision and I think he is cognizant that he has a big enough platform that people would listen so he tried to get past all the questions as low profile as possible, so nobody would bring it up. And I think that's quite admirable, really. Well, and it used to be how sports was, where the players and the athletes 
they saw themselves as sports, whether football players, coaches, whatever, they're athlete, athletes first. And that was their predominant focus. They didn't go into politics or things outside of their realm or outside of their lane or anything like that. And that people really appreciate. That's why people love sports, because it's it's a very unifying concept, right? We don't really care about where you're from or who you voted for, or what your stance is on an issue. You know, are you playing for my team? Or are you playing for the other team? If you're playing for my team, I love you. If you're playing for the other team, I hate you. And that's it. That's all that matters. And that's all Rogers was really focusing on was just playing football in, in his world and staying in his lane as a football player. And that's used to be how a lot of sports uh, figures were. And now we've seen a lot of more of this, I'll, I'll call it activism, but it's really just a bunch of athletes, you know, spouting off on stuff they really don't know. And Rogers, to his credit, has shown himself to be a really, really smart guy and really self-aware guy to understand, hey, look, it's better for the game. It's better for me. It's better for my team. If I just keep, you know, if I don't make this a chance to use a platform for whatever side of this, uh, whatever side I take on this issue. And to your credit, he should be, it should be very admirable. It should be commended because we don't see that very much in pro sports anymore. I think that's part of the outrage. I think there's a lot of people, you know, the big media heads and all that, that expect athletes to always come out and take certain sides and, and be hard line, you know, follow this publicly all the time. And Rogers, 100% to his credit, didn't do any of that. And he says, look, I'm a football player. I'm going to focus on football, the stuff outside football. That's where everybody else to decide to make their own decisions, which is how it should be. And I applaud Rogers. I mean, that's 100% how it should be. And as time goes on with Aaron, I'm starting to become more and more a bigger fan. Obviously, his performance on the field has been extraordinary. But his mentality and hearing him in these interviews and things like that and how he thinks and reacts, it's really a throwback to what football, pro football, and what pro sports should really be about. And I think We've already touched on it some, but I think that segues into our next topic perfectly, and that is why have alternative sports media come more into the spotlight now rather than the traditional major sports platforms like ESPN, NBC Sports, CBS, whatever the case may be? Why has alternative sports media become more prevalent? Why are they breaking more stories? Why are they they're in the know? more than these traditional platforms. And I think to tie into the topic we just spoke about, the perfect example is Rogers made his statement uh, about being immunized versus vaccinated or whatever the case may be to, to avoid being in the media. He eventually did get COVID and the news broke and everybody starts attacking him. So where does Rogers turn to defend himself? Alternate sports media. He went on one of our favorite shows, the Pat McAfee show to uh, defend himself. And, and this is the thing. I think the large sports media, the news media has come out and they just want to attack everyone for everything. If they, unless if they could take a step back and realize maybe why he said what he said was so that he didn't have to do what he's doing now. But now people are attacking him for the stance that he took. So he has to explain himself somehow. What are you going to do? Sit there and take it? No, he's going to explain himself the best way that he could for the decisions he made. And like you said, nobody's come out and uh, publicly on the team or the organization. I think mean, I think he's had to be doing somewhat of a good job for the choices he made as far as uh, following whatever protocols he should have. Nobody's out here bashing him so i think they should back off and that's and the reason the way they do all these things really has 
been why alternative sports media has come into play because no one wants to hear these politically based talking head stories anymore. We just want to hear about sports. We want to hear about fantasy football. We want to hear about gambling. We don't want to hear why LeBron James is connected to China and the NBA and that he thinks aliens aren't real. I don't know. I just made that last part up. I don't I don't want people to go out and accuse LeBron James of well, not obviously believing LeBron aliens. thinks aliens are real. I saw Space Jam 2. Uh, so that is you know. very true, very true. Uh, but you know, shows like the Pat McAfee show, shows like Barstool Sports, pardon my take, some of the most popular sports media shows out there now, and I think they're getting such wide reach, they can get any guest they want nowadays because these players probably enjoy coming onto a platform that just wants to talk about sports. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, so I think that's a big part, obviously, the fact that it's actually a sports-focused enterprise, Barstool, Pat McAfee, there's a few others as well. But I think there's another side, too, is at these big media companies, like ESPN's a big one, where they have all these announcers and they have all these talking heads, and they call it, what do they call it in the industry? They call it talent, right? This is our talent. We got to have our talent. We got to have our, our guys in the sports talk shows and our ESPN anchors. That's our talent. That's who we have to pay. That's what really keeps the organization together. We have to pay those guys. And that doesn't make any sense because the talent in sports is the freaking athletes, right? Those are the guys that make the stories. Those are the guys that makes the plays. Those are the guys we tune in to watch and see. You know, it's not the talent isn't the anchor. It's not the interviewee. And I think the guys that, you know, you brought up, you know, NBC, CBS, ESPN, all of those big guys is they think it's about them. Their takes so, versus the athletes. Ex- exactly. They, they they want to bash Rogers because they think in their kind of like twisted mind that sports is about them. It's not about them. You don't play sports. You, you're, you're talking about someone else, you know, playing the game. You know, it's not about you. And they focus that it's all about them and, and, and they, they're, they're trying to attack and, 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 prod, and prod and they, they don't give athletes a fair shake all the time. And they're, they're trying to look for whatever dirt they can scrub up to, to uh, float whatever agenda and force whatever agenda they have that day. And all these athletes eventually just say, the heck with it. I'm just going to go on Pat McAfee where I know they're going to be funny. I know they're going to be engaging. It's not going to be too serious, but it's going to be a little serious enough. And let me speak my mind. They're not going to attack me or I'm going to go on Barstool or I'm going to go on any of these other alternative media sites, alternative sports media sites, and, and just have more of a forum that's more relaxed. And I can actually talk and, and show myself instead of having to just, you know, give 30 seconds of interviews followed by 10 minutes of being attacked to force whatever agenda, you know, it's, it, it, it's really uh, interesting that the fact that, whether it's McAfee, who's a former player, or guys like at Barstool, who, who are definitely not former players for the most part, the fact that I think a big part of their success is that they understand that it's not about them. It's about the athletes. I mean, and you, you see it with McAfee in his interviews with Rodgers, right? It's, it's very, you know, they're very pumped to have Rodgers on. They, they, all, they all go wild. It's a big thing. They're excited. You know, they, they pump them up. They promote them all the time. You know, and it's not because they're homers, but it's because they're fans, and that's what we are. That's what you and I are. That's what Barstool is. That's what the McAfee group is. We're fans of these guys. We can talk about them. We can be critical of their performance on the field if it's not up to a certain standard. But we're still fans because we know it's about them. ESPN and the big guys, they think it's about the anchors and the, the, the talking heads. And, and I think that's why no one likes them. I think that's why the athletes are turning away. And I think what's well, an important point is, like we said, at Barstool, 
the two hosts of one of the most popular sportscasts in the world, uh, sports podcasts in the world, pardon my take, uh, Big Cat and PFT, they aren't football players. They never played really in college. They didn't play in the NFL. And what did they do? They focus their entire show around the news stories that come out, the the games, what happened in the games, what to bet on in the games. It's not about Big Cat's take. It's not about PFT's take. It's about the games, about the players. It's about everything, just like you said. And I think the move is, and you say talent, and the talent aren't talking heads, it's players. What have people like McAfee and Barstool done? They have acquisitioned and moved towards having experts on their shows as far as McAfee, a former NFL player, had the acquisition or partnership with A.J. Hawk, another professional football player. And they can talk about things, but they still don't make it about themselves. They make it about the game. Uh, Barstool uh, now has Deion Sanders on their staff, and he does a show with them. But he still doesn't make it about, well, being Deion Sanders, he kind of makes it about himself. But he doesn't make it about himself and his takes on other people. It's about himself and it's all about primetime, baby. But that's here nor there. They still make the show. It's either all about the gambling or all about the news and the sports happen on the field, not what they think about it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really telling to see how uh, how the media has morphed. And I feel like it's been recently. I remember you know, growing up as a little kid, I always felt that ESPN when they had NFL primetime with Chris Berman and NFL live, like it was, it seemed to be more, much more about, you know, the players and the league and the stories and all of that. And I feel like more recently it's shifted more to about the anchor or the talking head. And it's, it's a real shame, but I'm glad that uh, alternative sports media has, has picked up the slack and uh, hope they keep it going and, and hope uh, shows like ours kind of fill in the gaps where needed to. Uh, do you have any more thoughts on this? Uh, there's a lot more we could go into, but uh, for the s- sake of time, that's for another day. But uh, alternative sports media is becoming more and more popular by the day, and I think that's great. Uh, our next topic this week is obviously one near and dear to my heart. Uh, Baltimore Ravens and my favorite player, Justin Tucker. Yeah. Uh, but Baltimore, again, for me, this hasn't been great. Uh I asked for less of these games, and I've just gotten more. Their third overtime game, second overtime victory. Uh, I don't know how many uh, game-winning field goals this is for Tucker this season. It's got to be about, like, four. But uh, they they won again in overtime, and I think they've now notched themselves in tied for first or close to first in the AFC. Uh, Titans are it's between the two of them right now. Yeah, the Baltimore's a half game back because of bye. So until everybody has their bye, there's going to be some weird standing differences. So Tennessee's got seven wins; they're seven and two. Baltimore six and two. So they're essentially tied, but technically Tennessee has a half game advantage, which will go away whenever uh, Tennessee has their bye. But back to the game. Yeah, this was kind of a weird game because uh, uh, Minnesota, who Baltimore beat, was up two scores, seventeen to three early. They're up 24 to 10 in the uh, third quarter, and Baltimore came back uh, to win the game in overtime 34 31. I think the interesting about Baltimore, I watched a lot of this game, obviously living in Baltimore, it was on TV. Um, I think the th- cool thing about what Baltimore has done offensively is obviously they've had the injuries at running back. So they're kind of shorthanded there, but they run the exact same offense. And because Lamar Jackson is the threat he is to run the ball himself, 
teams still have to account for Jackson in the running game, but they still also have to play that running offense because if they don't play and commit to stop the run with the running backs while also defending Jackson, they can still run the ball five, six, seven yards of carry. So they're still committing to stop the run, even though uh, the Ravens are really hurt at that position. So what does that do? That opens up Jackson to have really big productive games throwing the ball. I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure on, on the exact details, but I know Jackson's percentage of carries has gone up significantly. You know, the ratio of his carries uh, running carries with the, his overall team over the past few weeks of the season. So, you know, before it may have been only 10% of all Baltimore runs may have been Jackson. Now it's closer to 25, 30. What that means is it's not that necessarily that Baltimore is just uh, trying to hand the ball more to Jackson, put more on his back. It's more that the opportunities are there because even though the Ravens are hurt at running back, teams are still playing that running game because they're scared to death of it. And so as Jackson gets a better passer, he has now more opportunities down the field. He still gets his opportunities to run the ball. It's really impressive how they've grown as an offense. Yeah, I think currently he's 97 carries for 600 yards, which is incredible. Um, He's like one of the top 10 rushers in the NFL as a quarterback. So go figure. Uh, You call him a running back now, so everyone else does, but we might as well. Uh, Two things I think that are important is he's doing this uh, people don't understand how big uh, Sammy Watkins had grown into this passing offense, and he's still out. Rashad Bateman is back, and he's growing in the offense. He's been very productive so far, uh, really nice. I think he's going to develop nicely in this offense. But another big thing, Baltimore always typically has two tight end threats. We have Mark Andrews and somebody else, whether it's Hayden Hurst or anybody else. We've had a couple guys filling in this season who typically, they and they've adapted and now are top five tight end. I think his name's Tomlinson. Uh, I don't know what team he formerly played for. But for me, the important thing is this past week, Nick Boyle, one of my favorite players, Baltimore's uh, big blocking tight end who also is a receiving threat, has been activated. He practiced. He missed this game. He is on pace to start for this next game. So that's a big one. Uh for Baltimore to have a really solid blocking tight end back in the game who's also a threat in the passing game. Yeah, and it just goes to show how much that offense, and again, it, it, I can't hit on this enough, how teams are just so scared to death of whoever's playing running back for Baltimore just to get six, seven, eight yards of carry that they're still committing so much to stop the run that Jackson has so many opportunities in the passing game and he's eviscerating teams. He threw for, I think, 260 in Minnesota while running for another hundred. It's really impressive because you would think Baltimore on their fifth, sixth string running back right now, that teams would at least back off, but because of how good that scheme is and how, uh, how much defenses have to account for Jackson's running game. So they have to take a defender or two and allocate it strictly on Jackson, just in case he keeps the ball in these running plays. So they have to bring extra defenders in the box to handle the running back side. Even though they're so hurt at running back, they teams still have to do that to stop Baltimore. Jackson's growth as a passer has then added that element behind uh, those defenders. It's really impressive. I think Baltimore is making huge strides offensively. Defensively, I think they have some issues. They're not as good as they have been in the past, but I'm really blown away by Baltimore's efficiency on offense. Yeah, big, big hit to defense uh, this past week with Deshaun Elliott going out for the season. Uh, going to miss him, and I don't know if the trio approach to safety is going to help or hurt. they got to figure that one out and lock it down. Uh, rookie Brandon Stevens could step up in a big way, but he has been slightly not great 
as of late, but we'll see what happens. But I want to say, Nick, you say fifth string running back. How dare you insult Baltimore Ravens legend Le'Veon Bell? I think uh, I think he's you know obviously always been on the team. He never played in Pittsburgh or New York or Kansas City. He's always been on Baltimore, and this is where he is thriving. I think he got another touchdown this week, so he's looking great. Yeah, it's I, I'm honestly blown away because it's it's again I could talk about Baltimore's offense and their running scheme all day. We won't spend forever talking about it. But it's such a great offense just to watch from an offensive lineman's perspective because teams are literally scared to death of it doesn't matter who's playing running back. They're scared to death of whoever's back there because they know they have to put two guys on Jackson in the running game. They got to stack the box to stop the running back. Whoever he is opens up holes in the passing game. It's a great offense. It's it's really fun to watch, even as I'm sure for Baltimore fans here, it's it's a whole nother level. But as a football fan, it's it's very impressive now. Uh, Fun to watch is one thing, and I can I feel for you because I went through this about two weeks ago. But uh, there's another game that happened this week, two, in fact, that were not fun to watch. And uh, I'll I will let you say your piece on these. Uh, Dallas had a disappointing performance against the Broncos, to say the least, and the Bills Jags game that was just one of the weirdest games I'd seen and the bills just stunk all over the field and the Jags were able to kick enough field goals to win the game. I wouldn't say that they were good, but they were better than the bills that day. And these, like you said, these were huge setbacks for these team and the uh, trend they had going on. Uh, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. So I'll start with Dallas, uh, Dallas, Denver. I, I think the big thing about that game is you hear a lot of people and, and I'm, you know, being more on Twitter and, and, and social media and looking at all the analysis teams uh, people do of the games and they look at different, you know, they look at coverages and game plans and highlights and what made the difference. And sometimes football is so simple. Denver offensively against Dallas, their tackles and their guards were able to zone block on the running game. So zone block, they're able to go to their gaps, their zones and control that defender all night long. And they absolutely gashed Dallas in the running game. Offensively for Dallas, Dak Prescott just had his worst game of his life. He was eight for 25 through three quarters, missed a number of open receivers, especially on some big third and fourth downs, you know, between those two things, Denver running the football down Dallas's throat, Dak Prescott, can't complete even a simple pass. He was just really, really bad. And suddenly, throw all that game plan out the window, throw all the coverages, throw all the schemes, throw all the motions. Hey, if you can't block, if you can't, if if you can't stop the run and you can't complete a pass, you're going to lose. And that's what Dallas did. They got absolutely mollywopped. You know, as as a football fan, it's kind of reassuring to see sometimes. Hey, if you block better, you win. If you play better defense, you win which is obviously what Denver did. And that's basically what it came down to. There was no frills. There was no, you know, key injuries or key uh, exotic blitzes or anything funky or wild that, that tilted the game. It was just getting smash mouth, hit in the mouth and being out executed is what Dallas was. And kudos to Denver. They played really well uh, and, and really did a great job blocking Dallas's front and taking advantage of Prescott, not being able to complete, you know, darn near anything, throwing the football. Uh, I really think, uh, the loss of Von Miller sparked this defense to play better. I don't know how how uh, that speaks about Von Miller, but you know maybe he left and that was the spark that they needed. 
so interestingly enough, sometimes, because if you have a player like Miller, who's obviously a veteran and a star has been around forever, he's going to, just by his status, he's going to get a lot of playing time, even though there may be some younger players that are even just as good or even better. So no, because no one's going to, as a coach, if you put Vaughn Miller on the bench, that's a lot of negative publicity, right? What are you doing? That's a Hall of Famer. Why aren't you playing him on third down? Even if you know that, hey, we got a guy, another younger guy that's just as good as Miller and maybe better in some situations. So with Miller gone, that kind of opens up that defense under uh, Coach Vic Fangio to kind of put maybe more strategically better players in certain situations. But, gra- but granted, I, th- I think even that's more complicated than the way that game went. Again, it comes down to Denver just outblocked and outhit Dallas up front, plain and simple, and Prescott just flat out stunk. Uh, speaking of, of, of stinking, you know, you brought up Buffalo, um, just the really awful. Historic Josh Allen versus Josh Allen weekend. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, you, you want to hit on that a little bit? That's a pretty cool story. Uh, well, yes, it's the first time that a, um, defensive player has sacked an offensive player of the same name, also intercepted them any, anything really. But uh, the Josh Allen, the linebacker for the Jacksonville Jaguars, clearly was the better player on the field that day of the Josh Allen of the Buffalo Bills. Another stat, I believe, is in five games in NFL history where there has been a player on defense with a same name as a quarterback on offense. Uh, the defense is 5-0. and They've won every game. So I pray that we never play the Jets because they have a corner named Lamar Jackson. Uh, but this this just, it was just weird hearing, oh, and Josh Allen around the corner, and he sacks Josh Allen. Like, uh, it, was, it was weird, a weird game, a weird weekend of football in general. Yeah, it's you got to feel for uh, the play-by-play announcers and, and those up in the press box trying to keep, uh, keep track of the stats and, and things like that. When it comes to Buffalo's performance, you know, just terrible offensively. Jacksonville's not good on defense at all. Um, Buffalo's defense did their part. Holding anybody to nine points is really good. I think they're the number one scoring defense in the NFL still, even after this week. Um, they're, they're a good defense. I think Josh Allen has taken a step back. I mean, yeah. he has as good as he was last year, he hasn't really – lived up to that at all he had a couple really big games uh obviously played well against kansas city but frankly aside from jordan love who hasn't played well against kansas city you know again it's it goes back to my point against the uh the talk about with the dallas game you know as much as all these scheming and and play calling and game planning and 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 strategery so to speak that goes into these games you know sometimes if your quarterback just stinks like Mahomes has done with the Chiefs and a few of these games, like Dallas did against Denver, like Josh Allen did against Jacksonville, you're going to lose the game in the NFL. And frankly, I think that's what it comes down to. Josh Allen, the quarterback, not the defender, really stunk it up and the Bills lost. Yeah, I think that's a big one. And I think we're seeing a lot of this lately where these really terrible teams who aren't playing very good football this year, they're sneaking out of nowhere and beating really what we're considering top-tier teams in the NFL right now. You see the Giants do it. You see the Jets do it. You see Jacksonville doing it. Uh, And I would like to set the precedent now. This week, this is the Detroit Lions week. This is the week they they come off the bye. They get inspired by this Jacksonville performance. And they win a game. It's a bold claim. They're playing the Pittsburgh Steelers. But this is going to inspire them to win 
a game. Mark my words. Yeah, I, I, I hope for Motor City Dan Campbell's sake that that it is their week, and we'll we'll have to get to that a little bit more on our on our uh, game pick segment later this on one of on our uh, second show this week. Uh, but speaking of uh, you know getting motivated and, and and playing better, look, don't look now. The Patriots have won three in a row. I mean, they're a half game back. I know weird standings again of the Buffalo Bills in the AFC East. Are we sleeping on Bill Belichick in New England right now? Yeah, I think everyone's asleep at the wheel. Uh, we're we're giving Buffalo the division. I don't think that's a given anymore. I think New England's a legit contender for the division. They're just a game back. I think that's easily achievable for them. But I never thought they would not be a playoff team. I always thought they had the potential to make the playoffs. But I think we're especially sleeping on them being the division leader. I think they have a very good shot at winning this division. Yeah. And the thing with new England is they're actually very, very well balanced. They've got a good running game. They got Damian Harris on a solid offensive line anchored by left tackle Isaiah Wynn. They got the tight ends, Hunter Henry and John U. Smith. They picked up in the off season. You know, they got Kendrick Bourne at wide receiver. Uh, Jacoby Myers is starting to grow. You know, so their offense is, is kind of balanced. Their defense is really good. Uh, I think J.C. Jackson, their corner, after two picks and a pick six against Sam Darnold, I think he's had more picks than anybody in the NFL since 2018. It's crazy. It, it, it's very, very strange because they're kind of quiet. We're so used to New England always being in the news and always being the primetime game and with Tom Brady and always being really, really good. And the setback last year with the Newton experiment that didn't work out obviously put a damper in people's minds. And Mac Jones being a rookie, you know, maybe lowered expectations some. But New England is five and four more than halfway through the season. And they're they're just lurking. And nobody wants to play a Belichick team late in the season in Foxborough or frankly anywhere when he gets to use his uh his his artful little game plan and scheming and matchups. And Mac Jones is only going to get better with time. I think New England's a, a very, very scary team as we head down the second half of the season. I hate it personally. It's not fair. Uh they're not, you're not supposed to go from one great quarterback to another. Uh, Mac Jones looks pretty good so far, uh, so I I hate it. I I don't think it, I th- I think we need to investigate. Uh, there's probably like I don't know. He's on HGH. They cheated in the draft. Uh, I don't know. They contacted him beforehand. Who knows? I don't I don't know what it was. We need to look into it though. I, I don't trust it. <laughs> but uh, one other thing that we can't trust anymore is. If your starting quarterback goes down, that doesn't mean you're going to lose anymore. Uh, especially in the case of the Arizona Cardinals, uh, Colt McCoy uh, piloted that offense expertly, had a very big day, uh, but someone who is equivalent to a quarterback, Derrick Henry for the Titans, goes down a few weeks ago. They still they beat the Los Angeles Rams, one of the top NFC teams right now. Who's Super Bowl my Super Bowl pick, a uh, huge contender to go far in the playoffs this, this season. But so is Tennessee. But they're with it's saying the Rams without Matt Stafford. Tennessee is without Derrick Henry. Arizona is without Kyler Murray. What is this saying about these teams for you, Nick? Yeah, so I think Arizona is is just stacked. I think that's what it means. Obviously, offensively, they made moves. Uh, they brought in A.J. Green. They brought in DeAndre Hopkins last year. They traded for Wirtz, uh, not Wirtz, Zach Ertz from Philly. 
uh, in the middle of the season this year. They've, they are absolutely loaded offensively. James Connor running back from Pittsburgh has stepped up and played at a high level. They've, uh, they've, they've just, just arms. I call it an arms race in that division. You know, you got the Rams trading for a bunch of guys too. It's just a race to see who can get the most weapons. And right now it looks like Arizona is, we all thought Kyler Murray was an MVP candidate. You know, he leaves and Colt McCoy comes out of nowhere. I didn't know this was 2005. I didn't know Colt McCoy was still playing in the NFL. He comes out of nowhere, has a great game against the heated division rival in the San Francisco 49ers, and they blow out a desperate 49ers team. This is an unbelievable roster. I think a part of it has to go to Kingsbury, the head coach, the job he's done. I honestly thought after they lost that heartbreaker to Green Bay, this is the start of a slide for this team, especially when Murray was banged up. Doesn't matter. This team is so loaded. They can beat the brakes off of anybody. Arizona is a threat. Absolutely. And I think uh, this shows that Kyler really, you know, hasn't been the key to success with this team. I think anybody could do it. And I think uh, that that's something to look for going forward. But I also think this says a lot about the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, I think Kyle San- Shanahan's seat is getting a little bit hotter. Uh, I think that they got to figure some stuff out because what they're doing uh, isn't working lately. Uh, they've had some big disappointments, and this is one of them. You're supposed to beat a team when their starting quarterback goes down, but nonetheless, what's even more disappointing is this Los Angeles Rams team. How can you let the Titans, without Derrick Henry, come and beat you up like that? I mean, Ryan Tannehill is not Matt Stafford. Uh, nor does he claim to be, but it, you get like an 800-year-old running back, Adrian Peterson, off the street. But I'll be honest, they didn't even really run the ball this game. They just passed it all over them, and they beat the Los Angeles Rams. Who is this? Is this the second part? Is this the Von Miller curse? Is they get Von Miller and they lose? Denver loses Von Miller, and so now they're just gonna like win all the games for the rest of the season. Is this what's happening? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, Von Miller being a curse would be very interesting and probably very bad for the Rams fans. I, I think it just comes down to, again, it's just football can be so simple sometimes, as, as complicated as people like to make it. Matt Stafford had an awful game. He threw two interceptions. One of them was returned for a touchdown. One of them was returned to the two. You know, they lost by 12 points. There's a difference in the game right there. They didn't get in the end zone until the final two minutes of the game. There's a difference right there. When you're bad at quarterback, you turn the ball over, you miss some throws, you don't take advantage of situations, you're going to lose games. I don't think L.A. Play, played poorly defensively. Like you said, Tennessee didn't run the ball very well. You know, L.A. and Aaron Donald obviously did a heck of a job there. I think Jalen Ramsey, uh, cornerback for the Rams, even picked off Tannehill once. So I think L.A. played good defensively, certainly good enough to win. But just the Titans with their defense taking advantage of Stafford playing poorly. Hey, look, sometimes that's what it comes down to. And what I'm interested to see for this Rams team is Stafford in Detroit. He was allowed to kind of have a bunch of bad games over the course of a season with the Lions because, frankly, the Lions stunk. So if he had a three-pick game or two-pick game and threw away a couple games, huh, no one cared. The Lions weren't going to be anything anyway. But I'm curious to see down the stretch if Stafford is able to be more consistent because if he throws away games, winnable games, which this certainly was for L.A., I, I think there's going to be a lot of disappointment in the Rams organization. This is a Rams team that felt when Murray got hurt 
uh, you know, when uh, the Arizona San Francisco game, Murray going being hurt going into that game, and the Rams get to play Tennessee without Derrick Henry, their thought was, all right, this is it. This is our chance to take the number one spot in the division, no doubt about it. And they just blew this opportunity, and it falls back on Stafford and his poor play. Absolutely. And I would like to point out, you talk about differences in these teams, difference between us. You like to point out the obvious. Yeah, maybe Stafford played bad. Maybe those two picks were the difference in the game. I like to point out the Von Miller curse. So mark my words, the Von Miller curse is a real thing, uh, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to plague these teams or help them for the rest of the season. But uh, moving on to our last few topics that we have, just a couple of things to touch on. Uh, has the 2020 first-round draft class of the Las Vegas Raiders quickly just become the worst first-round draft class of all time? Neither of these guys are even in the NFL anymore after one season. Right, so you have Damon Arquette, who was your second-round pick, just got cut. He's facing criminal charges for uh, threatening, a, I guess, a commenter on Instagram or TikTok who uh, said mean things about him. I, I don't really know too much about the details of that other than that's pretty insane. And obviously the Henry Ruggs incident uh, with him getting the DUI and the car accident uh, there. Look, all I can say about this was a bad draft class for the Raiders, but I tell you what, whatever prison gets these two guys, they're winning the prison league. Write it down right now. I want to see that actually. Like, you know, all, all things aside, uh, the DUI was horrible. We talked about that on a previous episode. Uh, our thoughts on that. Very terrible. I'm glad that it's being dealt with appropriately. Uh, Damon Arnett, it's crazy. I don't know why he's allowed to have a gun like that and like 200 round clips on it like ar-15 i'm support of gun ownership but if you're gonna be like someone offends you on instagram live and you're saying like roll up on me son i'll kill you i I don't know if that's the the right kind of person to have a gun like that so i you know uh, we might want to look into that one but that's that's what uh it's just that would be if those two could get there that would be like the ultimate longest yard remake. Like we get Henry Ruggs and Damon Arnett to like that that story, like build it out, like some some prison in Texas that loves football. Yeah, pull some strings, get them down there. I I think we are, we're onto something. So if yeah. anyone wants to like you know work with us on that uh, scriptwriter, just give us a call. You can find our information on the on the website, yeah. smishow.com. Yep, absolutely. I think we are. I think we got a great idea there. I think that's a multi-billionaire movie, Longest Yard 3. Um, speaking of Longest Yard and uh, potentially uh, immoral activity, there's been some interesting rumors and maybe some uh, kind of conspiracy theories floating around the league these past couple of days. Uh, do you want to update everyone on that, Mize? Yeah, so last season, relatively quietly, and you've seen the commercials recently, uh, the NFL has taken on five new gambling sponsors this has also correlated with a huge uptick and really shadily called officiated games in the nfl uh one thing that i would like to focus on so obviously is there a correlation between these things like uh is one like are these refs like fixing the games i don't know but i'd like to point out this what i'm calling the hip check controversy on Monday Night Football. Uh, is that a HIPAA violation? Yeah, as a, you know, his his something was violated. Um, 
Do you remember what the ref's name was? Current, uh, Tony Carinti. Cur- yeah. Tony Carinti, there's a Bears player walking back to the sideline. And it looks like this ref leans in and, like, makes contact with the Bears player and then throws a flag on him for taunting or whatever the case was, uh, unsportsmanlike, whatever. And th- there were so many penalties in, like, a five-minute span of that game that allowed Pittsburgh to keep the ball moving down the field and hindering uh, the Bears from a few touchdowns. That was a really weird game on how they called it, and it just doesn't make much sense to me. No, I mean, I mean, I, it doesn't make much sense to me either. Obviously, Corinthi took the over in that game. That's why he kept throwing the flags. I personally would have taken the under. I thought it would have been a more low-scoring game, but Corinthi went the other way, and I guess that's why he had to throw the flags, you know, give a, give the Steelers more opportunities to pad the points a little bit so he could maybe uh, clear the over. Um, yeah, all, all, all joking aside, the flags stink. The taunting penalties are getting ridiculous. It, it's getting so bad that these uh, these conspiracy theories, so to speak, about you know is gambling actually affecting this? It almost looks like it has a little merit because of how bad it is, and that's bad for the league, and that's bad for football. And the excuses after the game were just terrible by Carinti when he was uh, asked about it. Uh, he said when the the Bears defender who made the sack said he walked towards the uh, Steelers sideline and stared at him, and I thought he was doing so in an, in an and an intent to taunt them. He stared at them menacingly. Yes, <laughs> menacingly. <laughs> very very menacingly. It was a very taunting stare. You know, a group of 50 year uh, group of 50 men in in physical peak prime condition of humanity was shaking in their boots and terrified because one guy stared at them menacingly. It's just terrible. It's it stinks. Get it out of the game. And there the- shouldn't be these uh controversial calls where the ref the ref shouldn't be making judgment calls on whether the intent behind a player's action was a taunt or not that's just bad for the game of football but uh another interesting story that we have and we will keep you updated on this as it goes uh the cleveland browns have parted ways with uh super once we'll see could be considered still was once a superstar wide receiver, Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, He has cleared waivers as of the filming of this show and is now a free agent, free to sign whoever he wants, and he has made a statement that the Green Bay Packers are his top destination to sign. Nick, what do you think this says? Uh, Do you think OBJ would be helpful to the Green Bay Packers? Do you think this would be a good move for them, or would it be a good move for him? I think it's a better move for Beckham than it is for the Packers. I think that, uh, Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams already have a special relationship. You know, Adams gets a lot of targets, especially in the red zone, and Rodgers is not going to stop doing that. Uh, the only thing that would happen is LaFleur, that offensive staff, if they get Beckham, they try and force feed him the football a little bit. Uh, I understand why Green Bay is linked to Beckham. I don't see it. Green Bay has kind of morphed into a more balanced team. They run the ball with A.J. Dillon. They run the ball with Aaron Jones. Obviously, Adams gets his touches. You know, Green Bay likes to use the tight ends. They have MVS and Alan Lazard, guys who aren't big names, obviously, as receiving threats. But they also aren't big egos. They're more than happy to only catch maybe 20, 30, 40 passes a season. Beckham has been pissed off that he hasn't been getting the ball in Cleveland over the past few years. And he's not happy if he goes somewhere else, even if they're a winning team, 
and he doesn't get the touches. I don't see it happening, uh, in him going to Green Bay, to be honest. I don't think Green Bay should get him. I just think it's a story uh, just so that way. Maybe Beckham is just trying to force things to happen just by leaking stories out there. Uh, I also could see it as a way to maybe have him drop some interest from competitors, maybe a team like uh, Minnesota, Chicago, or somebody else in the AFC, you know, maybe even the Rams can go figure uh, trying to compete with Green Bay if Beckham is linked to Green Bay. I mean, what do you think? You think there's any merit to him going to the Packers, or do you think this is all just uh, just fluff right now, rumor no, mill? I just think he said something to say it, and uh, you know, not much to say other than that. I think he's just trying to trying to dictate where he goes, and you know, I don't. I, he says that Green Bay didn't say it, so if someone said Green Bay wants him, then I'll believe it. But uh. That, that's all we had on those, but this leads us into our next segment, our worst-to-first segment, AFC Division Leaders. Um, I'll let you start this one if you want, Nick. Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, so AFC Division Leaders, uh, worst-to-first, starting with my number four, and that's the division leader in the AFC West. That's the Los Angeles Chargers. Look, they come off a relatively big win against Philly, but this team only goes as far as Justin Herbert will carry them. When Justin Herbert is on, they are really, really tough to beat. They beat the Chargers. They beat the Raiders handily. They just beat Philly. But when he's off and things go south, things can go south fast. They got absolutely smacked by Baltimore. They lost a game uh, against New England because Herbert did not play well. I think this team has talent, and I really, really like Justin Herbert. If he can just you know, lower the turnovers a little bit, get a little bit better at managing the game in situations, but I don't think they're a contender until Herbert gets better at that. I have them at number four. Number three is the Buffalo Bills. I think they're probably the most talented and deep team in the AFC. I think they've got good coach, good quarterback, good defense, good skill players led by Stephon Diggs, Cole Beasley. They got Dawson Knox at tight end. Big play team. They've been there before. They've been in the playoffs the last two years, went to the AFC Championship game. But if you lose to Jacksonville Jaguars and hand the Jacksonville Jaguars their first win on American soil in 420 days, I'm going to bury you in my rankings. You don't get to be top two if you lose to the Jaguars. And that's why the Bills at number three. Number two for me is the Tennessee Titans. They would be number one, no doubt about it, if they still had Derrick Henry. You know, big win for the against the Rams. They did it with defense and Tannehill managing the game fairly well. I like Vrabel as a coach. I like the mentality that team brings. Julio Jones hasn't had as much of an impact as I thought, but he still had a pretty good season. A.J. Brown's having a Pro Bowl caliber year. But this team is built around Derrick Henry in the running game. I think they can win some one-offs without Derrick Henry, but without him, I, I just don't see them as a top contender. They're actually the number one seed if the playoffs started today in the AFC but I don't really see him as a threat anymore without Henry. So they're at number two. And that leaves me with number one, the Baltimore Ravens. And this is strictly based on that offense and Lamar Jackson and his growth as a passer and uh, Greg Roman, the offensive coordinator of Baltimore, understanding more of what Jackson can do and what uh, they need to do offensively. Like I said before, I think they've taken a step back defensively, but they're still good enough to win games. And Jackson and Jackson's improvement as a passer has leaps and bounds. He's been absolutely unbelievable. He's the leading passer of that team, obviously, and leading rusher of that team. He leads the NFL in yards per carry. He's over six, I think. Um, look, this this offense is still dynamic with Jackson. 
Uh, Bateman as a receiver, you hit on him. He's he's added another element. Sammy Watkins will be coming back soon. You know, they got Doyle back. I, this team is getting healthier. This team is getting better. I think they're a threat in the AFC. Uh, last week, I predicted that they're going to go to the Super Bowl, and I'm still riding that train after they beat Minnesota. So I'm going with uh, Baltimore at number one. It's a good list. I can agree with that. And my list is fairly similar. In my four spot, I also have the Chargers. Uh, pretty much everything you said, the inconsistency of Herbert is what lives or dies with this team. If Herbert's on, they're on. If Herbert is off, they don't stand a chance. Uh, they've had some really good wins and they've had some really ugly losses. So uh, we're talking division leaders here, guys. I'm not saying the Chargers are bad. I'm just saying of the top four teams in the division, they're the worst. Number two, I also have the Buffalo Bills because consistency. Obviously, they have a great defense, uh, but offensive play for Josh Allen, he has been on and off, on and off. This this is a, a common theme here, consistency. If Josh Allen is playing bad football, the Buffalo Bills look like a floundering middle-of-the-road team. If Josh Allen is playing real good football, they look like an absolute powerhouse who can blow out any bad team in the league, except apparently the Jacksonville Jaguars, and, you know, are mowing down the competition. So they got to get a little bit more consistent. And here's where our list differ. In my number two spot, I like the boys to play with a chip on their shoulder. I'm going to put the Baltimore Ravens because we have done well this season, uh, we, we obviously have a good record, head of the division, but I've seen too many overtime games. I've seen too many last-second field goals. I've seen too many punch-out fumbles from the Chiefs to barely win the game to be comfortable. So I'm not going to tell you you're the best team in the AFC. I'm going to tell you you're number two. got to earn number one. Let me see you blow someone out by 100. I want to see us, like, I don't want to be riding on the edge of my seat into the playoffs. We got to play better. We got to get bigger leads. We got to do more against these teams. My number one team is the Tennessee Titans. And this isn't necessarily a joke. I do think Tennessee is a very strong team. Uh, They've been very impressive in their last two games without Derrick Henry. Uh, I think they've managed to uh, make make do with that. Uh, I think Ryan Tannehill played very well this week. I think Tennessee has a very good offense. And... Their defense has played admirably. So I think they are a very big contender. I think they'll definitely uh, end up winning that division and moving on. So that's that's my list. Uh, I think, you know, we're, we're pretty much on the same page. I just want the boys to play a little bit. A little bit wider margins. I don't want it to be that close. Yeah, so I think this is this is an awesome moment in our show's history because we obviously talked Baltimore with their win earlier in the show, and then we obviously talked about them in this last segment. Credit to you. This is a big moment in show history. We've talked Baltimore for probably more than 15 minutes, and I don't know if you brought up the glory that is kicker Justin Tucker yet. Well, Usually when we talk Baltimore, you you it's the first and last thing out of your mouth. You just want to talk kicking all the time, and Good, good on you, Miles. Great, great growth. This is this is a big moment for for you and for the show. To- Kicking is a big part of football, <laughs> and I think it's important. So, uh, but I digress. Uh, you know why I like kickers so much, Nick? Why is that? It's because I haven't looked at these lists yet, but I bet you there's not one kicker on our top five 
divas in NFL history. Kickers are very down-to-earth people. They're very, you know, just like blue-collar, go-to-work, using their foot to slam it into the ball, hit it through the uprights. There's no nonsense. It's just good salt-of-the-earth people. A lot of kickers are, like, from Texas, Wisconsin. Like, you know, just, like, Midwest guys who know how to kick a, a football. But uh, that, that leads us to our next segment, our top five divas, prima donnas, whatever you want to call it in the NFL. I will get us started. My number five diva in the NFL is Jerry Jones. I don't think just players can be divas. I think owners and coaches can be divas as well. And who more to be a diva than Dallas's own Jerry Jones? Uh, Jones had huge success. I think he what he had three Super Bowls in his first seven years as an owner. Uh, you know, he's the old school slick oil man straight out of the Dallas TV series. You know, you always know what he's going to say. He's the face of that Dallas team. He's going to tell you how it is. Uh, he wants it his way or the highway. He's the definition of a diva owner, and I think he does it right every every way he does it. So in my number five spot, I have Jerry Jones. Dallas Cowboys. Number four, I have Cam Newton of uh, the free agency team. Uh, He is not currently playing with anybody, but Cam Newton is a diva in multiple ways. Uh, He's a big talker. He's a cocky guy. He dresses like a diva for sure. Uh, I have a great picture of a hat that he is wearing has a hole cut in the top of it for his hair to come out the top. It's pretty crazy. He always has on a crazy outfit. Um, I think he's like the led the charge of new wave divas into the NFL. Uh, they have all kinds of fashion. Uh, they want to make a statement. They want to talk about their opinions. Uh, they want the spotlight to be on them. Uh, it's what I would consider to be kind of a distraction for teams. Or, you know, spotlight, depending on how well they play. But they're always in the forefront of that team. And I think Cam Newton is that for whatever team he is on. Whether it was the Patriots or the Panthers or Auburn. But uh, number three, I have Baltimore Ravens legend, Des Bryant. Um, Des Bryant, when you think of Diva wide receiver... He's, like, in that top echelon of receivers. He's had numerous sideline blow-ups with quarterbacks about not getting the ball enough. You know, he he has the play and ability to back up being a diva, but Des Bryan, sometimes he will retaliate if he thinks he's not getting the ball. He'll give up on routes. Uh He'll quit at the end of the game. He's been accused of these things. We're not saying that he'd done that. Uh, he's He's been in some off-the-field trouble as well. Uh, and I think his biggest problem is his inability to handle criticism. Like, truly, like, what a diva would be. If you say that the problem is Dez, he's going to fire back and be like, no, the problem is everybody else except me. But... Nonetheless, Baltimore Ravens legend, Des Bryant, uh, 
near and dear to my heart. So we'll move on to who I truly think the biggest diva wide receiver in NFL history is, and that is none other than Antonio Brown. This guy, I don't know if he's so much of a diva as he is actually mentally insane. Uh, he, he coming out of Florida, obviously like Florida man, you know, Miami guy goes to Florida state. Uh, then he go, he gets out of there, central Michigan, uh, where he plays college. He's drafted real late by Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh somehow has this vacuum where they hold all of his character flaws in place for so many years until all of a sudden he has a blow-up, calls Juju Smith-Schuster out, calls out Ben Roethlisberger, gets cut from the team, uh, goes out, dyes his mustache blonde, wants people to call him Mr. Big Chest, uh, you know, then goes to the Oakland Raiders, uh, comes in on a hot air balloon, has a fit because he can't have the helmet that he wants and then decides he wants to leave the Raiders. He calls the GM of the Raiders a cracker. Uh, He freezes his feet somehow and he finally gets cut from the Raiders, goes to the Patriots, plays okay for the Patriots, and now has left the Patriots to follow Tom Brady to Tampa Bay. And I'd say that they've somehow reeled in his divaness a little bit. There's too many divas on that team for him to shine so much. But he's one of the most controversial diva-ish players I've seen in history. But he doesn't even come close to the original diva. The diva that started it all. Broadway Joe Namath. Joe Namath doesn't even play anymore and he's still a diva. Uh, you know, he's shown up to interviews drunk. Uh... He's, he was the initial guy when he got drafted the Jets, Broadway Joe, that name just screams, I'm a diva. He had that long flowing hair, the long sideburns, wearing the fur mink jackets on the sidelines at times. That just like screams like, I am a diva. And I think one thing that Joe Namath did was the biggest diva move that turned out to pan out was when he declared that they would win a Super Bowl. And it turned out that they did win. And it was like the biggest diva moment where like they converted and everyone's like, yeah, win one for the divas. So that that's my number one diva of all time, Joe Namath. An honorable mention for me, it goes without saying, one thing we always have to mention on this show is I think Baker Mayfield is one of the biggest divas in the NFL. Uh... He currently has subpar play. He always complains about stuff. He has, like, everything you could possibly want on an offense in an NFL. Uh, He just does commercials all the time, all of these things, and he doesn't even want to admit it. He doesn't want—he's too much of a—I'm sure he's on set, and he, like, demands nachos without jalapenos on it. Uh, He wants his chicken grilled. Uh, He's got to be the biggest diva on these commercial sets. But he's also the biggest diva because he complains about everything. He always has an excuse. You know, he's it's, it's never his fault. It, he's just one of the biggest divas I have ever seen. Yeah, so I, I gave you credit for, you know, 
not bringing up Justin Tucker. I thought we were almost going to make it through a show without you bashing on the Cleveland Browns and Baker Mayfield, but we didn't quite get to it. So maybe next time, Baker, maybe you'll make it next time. But uh, I'll go ahead and give you give you mine. I'll, I'll, I'll power through this. So I've got my top five divas of all time. Number five is Neon Dion Sanders. This guy was one of the original showboats in the 80s and 90s with a new age player. He came into the NFL in 1989. By the time he had kind of matured and been a legit superstar, it was the mid-90s, and that's when free agency took the league by storm. Dion, always the businessman, took advantage of that. He jumped ship three times in four years, jumping from Atlanta to San Francisco to Dallas before playing for Washington and then ending his career in all places, Baltimore. This is a guy who wore underwear with dollar signs on it. When he played baseball, he draw dollar signs in the, uh, in the dirt in the batter's box. This guy was all about the flash. He had the fancy clothes, the fancy jewelry. You see the picture right there. You know, this is a, uh, this is one guy. He names himself Primetime. It's a nickname he gave himself. That's pretty diva-ish. I got to say that. If you got a nickname yourself and you pick Primetime, that uh, takes a little bit of a, a little self-centered nature. And my favorite part about Dion is like any good diva, he always knew the right time and the wrong time to stick his neck out. And he knew the wrong time to stick his neck out when it was actually time to tackle someone in the run game. He made a business decision. He'd always step to the side or, or not get involved in the tackle. Always are worried about his image. Deion Sanders, the number five diva of all time. Number four, this is a guy that uh, doesn't get quite the credit he deserves in the land of divas and prima donnas. And this is Thomas, the original Hollywood Henderson. This was a guy linebacker for Dallas in the 1970s. Really uber talented guy. Had a great start to his career. Lawrence Taylor, the all-time great for the Giants, saw Thomas Henderson wear number 56. And he wanted to wear number 56 too because of how well Henderson was playing. You know, Henderson was going to be that kind of guy, but he got caught up all in the antics of being Hollywood. You know, Dallas, very popular team. He dated a uh, Pointer sister for, you know, dated reference there, but they were obviously a big pop band uh, group back in the back in the time. He did all the interviews and a lot of fancy clothes. You know, he had a lot of Joe Namath swagger. Uh, unfortunately for Hollywood, is he a uh, he got a little too embroiled in the Hollywood lifestyle and eventually drugs cut his career short, but he was the original Hollywood nickname player and the number four diva of all time. Number three, we already talked on him. It's Odell Beckham Jr. This is a guy who rose to fame in New York, the media capital of the world. He loved the attention. This is a guy that did GQ shoots and Esquire shoots all the time. There's all these interviews with all these hit magazines. It felt like he wanted to be more Kim Kardashian then, you know, be a star football player. He'd show up to interviews with a allegedly, uh, I'll call it a slightly, uh, uh, we'll call it intoxicated Lil Wayne. I'll, I'll phrase it like that for big interviews and uh, on his side and things like that. Always about being around celebrities, all about him and, and you know, what, what's best for Odell. It's also a bit of a hothead. He's known for getting in fights with players, including Josh Norman, and kicking nets, which happened a few times with the Jets, um, with the Giants, I'm sorry. Obviously, he worked his way out of Cleveland with his attitude and not willing to get along. We'll see here where he ends up, but no matter where he ends up, we know it's going to be all about Odell. He's the number three diva of all time. Picking the trend with receivers, going T.O., Terrell Owens here. This is the guy that had unlimited potential and unlimited talent. He also had an unlimited mouth. This dude never shut up. Granted, he had some funny celebrations, the pom-poms, the signed football, even doing the whole star thing on Dallas midfield was, was pretty funny in retrospect. 
but this guy was all about him. One of his favorite sayings was, I love me some me. Well, eventually him loving so much of himself wore quarterbacks the wrong way. He wore out his welcome with San Francisco, wore out his welcome in Philly, wore out his welcome in Dallas. He found himself in the uh, uh, NFL Hall of Fame just because of his sheer amount of talent and production. But this guy was all about diva. If you don't believe me, look up that press conference he conducted in his driveway, shirtless while doing crunches. Total diva move. That brings me to the number one diva of all time. And that's a guy who I'm still not sure what his name is. And that's Chad Johnson slash Ocho Cinco. Look, there's so much you can say about Johnson slash Ocho Cinco. Very productive career, funny celebrations, vocal guy. But you got to love a diva, right, who decides to change his name to his jersey number, right? This is sort of like Prince being the artist formerly known as Prince. Chad Johnson wore number 85, so he wanted to change his name to his jersey number. But he didn't even do that right. Like all divas, he was missing something upstairs, didn't have all his brain cells. He changed his name to Ocho Cinco, which means 8-5. That's not even his jersey number. His jersey number is 85. Classic diva move. You know, making it all about him, but not having the brain cells to actually do it right. Chad Johnson slash Ocho Cinco is my number one. And my honorable mention is Tom Brady. Look, obviously the greatest of all time at the quarterback position. You know, we see him all the time and, you know, his, his production and his, you know, as he grows into his mid-40s is unreal. Bucks are a contender this year. But look, this guy's a world-class griper and complainer. There's all the videos of him screaming and whining on the sideline. Look, he, every other documentary he does, he's always crying and emotional. He did that weird Tom versus time thing on Facebook where it was all like, woe is me. Look how sad I have it. It's like, Tom, you're, you're married to a supermodel. You've got five rings. You're worth like 500 bajillion dollars. And I think that's a real number, right? Bajillion. Absolutely. You know, it's, what are you complaining about? Like you're, you're upset that you're, only going to win six or you're going to have to retire from football at 48 to your supermodel wife and 180 bajillion dollars come on tom stop being so diva grow up a little bit he just can't help it maybe it's because he's from california but uh so tom brady is my uh my honorable mention diva of all time there's so much diva energy on the screen i don't even know if i can handle it I like just... like 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 the weird thing is i keep trying to look at you but i keep getting drawn back to the back to this back to the pictures like it, it's it's it pulls you in it sucks you in yeah i i just think these guys are like the male embodiment of the word karen like they're all <laughs> going to ask us for our manager and they're all going to complain about something like they're going to send their food back just, they're going to give us a one-star review on yelp exactly but uh, yeah, so I think these are really good lists. I think these these are getting fun. Uh, I I like the creativity. Uh, I like uh the the variation in the list. It's just a great category. So good job, Nick. I think I think that was a good one. Yeah, it was good. These these are really fun. Top the the diva one is kind of fun because there's there's all kind of antics and funny characters in the NFL just all time. So so that's a good one. Uh, I think uh. I think we've we've covered just about everything we want to talk this week. Real quick, though, and I know we got one game before uh, before the weekend, Thursday night football. Your Ravens against uh, Miami Dolphins. Uh, you got a pick for us? Who who you got in this matchup? Do you really need to ask? I think you got Miami by like fifty, yeah, like right? fifty points uh, at least. No, I think my rousing speech to put a chip on the boy's shoulder, putting them in second in the AFC. Uh, I think it's going to be the Ravens by score. Let's say. 35 to 10. Yeah, I think that that's likely. You know, I will say this. Miami has played some teams pretty close. 
Um, I could see this Miami kind of hanging around a little bit, but the wheels will eventually fall off. I'm thinking like 31, 14, you know, I could see it being like 17 to 14 at half and then Baltimore pulling away something to that effect. But I, I think the Ravens win. And I think in the fourth quarter, I think you'll be able to re- relax Thursday night for a big, big time Baltimore victory. I sure hope so. But that's it. That's our show. Uh, Nick, do you have any final words? Uh, just uh, thank you for everyone for listening. As always, uh, we appreciate all of our listeners and all of our fans who stuck around and watched the entire show. You guys are, are the support and the lifeblood of what we try and do. Like we talk about all the time, we are not big sports media. We don't have the big budgets and the fancy sets. We all are trying to position ourselves as an alternative media site like we talked about earlier today. So that means we need your support. You know, Like, comment, subscribe on this video, whether you're watching it on YouTube, uh, listening to it on any of where we watch podcasts, uh, where we watch podcasts like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Find us on our website, smishow.com. Follow us on Twitter at smifootballshow. You know, we really appreciate the support. Thank you so much for sticking around. I'm Nick Rudman. That's Andrew Mize. Mize, any final thoughts? No thoughts. I'm excited for another week of football, and we'll see you then. Yeah. yeah.